Thank you, Tim, Dale, and Wayne. God bless all of you for being here today. Welcome in Jesus' name. So glad you are here. We have people uh, who will be listening over the internet, perhaps some outside. We welcome all of them. Uh, my sister Rhonda told me she listens every week. I knew my sister Nancy did, but I didn't know Rhonda did. So hello to Nancy and Rhonda. My brother Ed, he wouldn't listen to anything, so he's not listening. But my sisters do. And a number of other people around our nation. And I'm always uh, humbled to hear that. Don't understand it, but appreciate it. But I'm glad you're here today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, in my life, I've uh, heard from, I hear from, still hear from a number of pastors who want me to help them find a new church. I got a resume this past week, said they'd heard there was a pastoral position opening here at Pebble Creek. I had to send back and say, son, no, there's not, but thank you for sending yours in preemptively. But uh, seriously, I'm not teasing. I really did get one from someone who said that. Um, but I hear from pastors regularly who want me to help them find a church. And over the years, I've actually had churches, pastor search committees call me uh, sometimes to get assistance because I wrote a book about it. But once in a while, I've had them call me and say, how do we get rid of the preacher we have? I'm not kidding. They, they really have said, how do we do this? How do we get rid of it? Uh, and here, here's been my, always my reply. Five suggestions I, I would give you in uh, how to go uh, to get rid of an undesirable pastor. Number one, look him straight in the eye once in a while and holler amen while he's preaching. He'll preach himself to death within a month's time, guaranteed. Number two, pat him on the back once in a while and brag on his good points. He'll work himself to death within three weeks, guaranteed. Number three, start paying him a living wage. Perhaps he's one of the many preachers that live on starvation wages so long that if he gets paid a good pay, he'll eat himself to death in less than a week. I've seen some preachers. I think they're well on the way to doing that, I'm telling you. The next one, rededicate your own life to Christ. Ask the preacher for a job to do. He'll die of heart failure immediately. Or last, here's the most important one. Get your church to unite in prayer for him. He'll become so productive, a bigger church will take him off your hands in a matter of months. How to get rid of preacher? Pray for him. And he'll get so good, he'll leave you. Don't you worry. Okay, obviously, those statements were tongue-in-cheek, a joke, kind of, sort of. But oh, the power of prayer. What if we all gathered for prayer and really were unified in prayer? What could happen? I hope, for example, you've been praying for President Miss Trump in the last few days having been diagnosed with COVID-19, shows you, shows me, shows all of us, that it can touch anywhere to anyone, can't it? No one is immune, but we need to pray for our president. Scripture commands us to do so, and we would anyway, wouldn't we? But we need to pray. How seriously these days we need to pray for our nation. 
we are divided uh, more than I've seen in my lifetime. As I pointed out on Wednesday night, our nation's been divided before, horribly so, to the point that we fought a civil war. But we are the most divided I've seen in my lifetime. We need to pray for our nation. There was a preacher who lived over a hundred years ago. His name was Billy Sunday. He wrote an article, and here's what he said. I ask you to spend 45 minutes each day talking. 15 minutes letting God talk to you through His Word. 15 minutes talking to God. And then 15 minutes talking about God to somebody throughout the day. And if you do those three 15-minute segments... He said, no one will ever write backslider beside your name. Well, that may be true. But Billy Sunday said he owed much of the success of his ministry to those simple facts. That if you just 15 minutes in the Word, 15 minutes in prayer, and 15 minutes of witnessing, it'll make you a different human being. So we could attribute this power to the power of prayer. Now prayer is our way of communicating with the Lord. It is God's way of energizing us. And we're going today to look into a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting where Jesus the Son prays to God the Son, Jesus, prays to God the Father. And it's a fascinating passage. So turn with me to John 17 as we look at what I call the Lord's Prayer. John 17. We're only going to look at the first five verses. And you say, well, it's going to take us a while to get through it. Well, just, that's right. But I believe it'll be worth your while. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Yes, I call it the Lord's Prayer. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I was always taught the Lord's Prayer is our Father which art in heaven. Well, you were taught wrong. That is the model prayer. That is the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught his disciples as a model of how to pray. It is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John 17, 1 through 5. Look there with me, please. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you have You gave him authority over all flesh so that he might do what? Now look at this. So that he might give eternal life to all you've given him. This is eternal life. Now this is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. My favorite today. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world even existed. Several things this morning. I want you to stay with me, okay? Pay attention. First of all, what is the special nature of this chapter? Well, I've already told you the special nature. It's the Lord's Prayer. It is our Lord Jesus praying as God the Son, praying to God the Father. It has also been called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. Meaning what? 
It is that place where we go into the very presence of God. I mean, this is, it's been called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Now listen to me. When you read John 17, you get the privilege of listening in to the greatest prayer that ever occurred. You get the privilege of listening in as Jesus, God's Son, prays to God the Father. It's an amazing opportunity as we hear Jesus pray. So it's powerful. It is unbelievable to think that we're privileged to listen in as he prays. I mean, look at it. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven. Now, when is this prayer occurring? I've taught you throughout John 16 and even before. He is, what's called, he is in what is called the upper room discourse. Meaning, when he met with his disciples in that upper room somewhere, really it's in southern old Jerusalem. He met with them and he taught them important, powerful things. And he met with them and said, now listen, I'm fixing to die. Now he didn't use South Carolina ease like we do. But he said, I'm just about to die. I'm going to die soon. And soon we will see Jesus. As he goes through that magnificent experience of praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where one of his own disciples betrays him, kisses him to identify him to the soldiers. And then he will be taken across that Kidron Brook, up to Caiaphas' house where he spends the night in the religious trial which was really a chicanery of a trial, and then taken to the stratofortress to be tried before Pilate, and that, that awful experience of the crown of thorns thrust upon his head, and the, his back was beaten, and we see that terrible uh, farce of a robe put upon him, and him taken to the place of crucifixion outside the city walls to the north, to the place called Golgotha where he would die. So preparatory to those events that led up to the death of our Lord Jesus for you and me. What happens? He teaches them all these powerful things. And he says, now I'm going to pray. And so Jesus spoke these things, looked up into heaven. Now when we pray, what do you do? Now if we're going to pray, bow your heads, right? No, he didn't bow his head. Jews, when they prayed, prayed looking up to heaven. So try that sometime. We bow out of reverence. We call it that, don't we? Well, who, who made that up? I don't know. Somebody made it up. But even little children, I remember seeing my little daughter Melissa once praying, leading a friend of hers to Christ out underneath the swing set in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And she had her hands like this. Why? I don't know. It taught her that's the way you pray. And you see praying hands everywhere, don't you? Well, who taught you that? I don't know, somebody did. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't bow his head. He looks up into heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. And he prays this prayer. and We'll talk about it. But this prayer makes it clear through all the things that were later to happen. It makes it clear that our Lord Jesus is not a victim, an unwilling victim who went to the cross unwillingly. 
But he prays here as the victor, not the victim. He is not one who is being seen as a victim. He is the one who not only is the victor, but he makes us understand that we can become victors too. Don't you remember what we said we're going to memorize? The verse preparatory to this, chapter 16, verse 33, he said, these things have I told you. He said, these things I've told you so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But he said, be courageous, be of good cheer. I've conquered the world. I'm not a victim. I am the victor. And in me, you can be the same. So we see this prayer, this special, special prayer. Second, let's look at the major points of this prayer. Now we're going to just look ahead just a little bit. It's not difficult to see really a kind of a division in this prayer. The first five verses, which we studied today, we see Jesus praying for himself, seeking an additional power and strength for the things that are to come. Now, people have struggled all through the centuries with who Jesus was. Was he God or was he a man? Well, the correct answer is both. Even in the third century, the Chalcedonian formula was developed at the Council of Chalcedon. Early churches gathered because people were arguing. Some said he was God. He was not really a man. He, he was never flesh. Well, no, yes, he was. Some said, well, he was just a man. He wasn't really God. God just adopted him for a period, the adoption theory. But Orthodox early Christians said, no, he is fully God, fully man. He is God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Orthodox Christians all through the years have believed Jesus was the Son of God, but he was also fully man. And he suffered as a man. And he was about to suffer things that no human being had ever suffered spiritually. And others physically had experienced it. But he was getting ready to experience some terrible things. So first he prayed for himself. We'll come back to that. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. This is beautiful. We're going to listen into that prayer as he prays for their power, their glorification, for their strength. And then the last part of the verse that we shall see in verses 20 through 26, he prays for somebody else. Who do you think that is? He prays for you and me. He prays for the church. He prays for all of us. You're going to see that you're on the prayer list of Jesus. That ought to get you pretty excited. But these are the major points. Now third, let's ask, why did Jesus pray this prayer? Why did he pray this prayer? Well, first of all, yes, he was preparing himself. Preparing himself for that which was to come. As I've just told you, he's about to go through the most horrible experience of betrayal. Not just Judas, but also Peter. His disciples will fall asleep. They'll leave him. He will go through these terrible trials, first religious, second civic or civil trials. Nothing civil about it. And then he will be crucified. So he's preparing himself. 
It's the greatest prayer ever prayed. He's, he's praying for new strength for a task that would literally shake the world. Literally shake the world. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, what happened? There was an earthquake. Remember that? The Bible says the earth shook. I mean, it, it, it was all of creation groaned. Even people that were dead, the Bible says, came alive and walked the streets of Jerusalem. The crucifixion was an earth-shattering event. So he prays so that he'll have the power he needs in his humanity to let the divinity flow through. But he also had his disciples in mind. What an encouragement as he prayed for their security. What an encouragement as he prayed for their joy. What an encouragement as he prayed for their unity. What an encouragement as he prayed for their future glory. So that's why he prayed the prayer. Now let's really dig into it. What privilege is ours because of this prayer? Excuse me. What privilege? Now we're going to see four different opportunities we're going to have to claim something in throughout the entirety of, of John 17. But we'll look at just the first one. We'll see that we share His life. We share His life. This is one of the four privileges, opportunities that is ours because of this prayer. So we see that we share His life. Now look first of all with me at verse 1. What does it say? It says he lived by a timetable that was not human. What did he say? Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. The hour is here. He lived on a divine timetable. Things are about to happen, Father. You know it. I know it. But I say this so that the disciples will hear it. Things are about to happen. As we look deeper into this text, we see him talk about glory. No one understands what this means, really. Because it's a, it's a divine concept that's almost impossible to translate, to discuss in human language. It really is. He talks eight times in these verses about glory. And he talks about various glories. Well, in verse 15... Uh, excuse me, verse 5, didn't read 15 yet. Verse 5, he refers to his pre-incarnate glory. I mean, look at verse 5. What does it say? Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before what? Before the world existed. So was Jesus just some adopted son who came along later on? No. He existed with God prior to creation. You hear me? He is not a Johnny-come-lately. He didn't just come up at the last minute. He existed, and he said, Father, glorify me with the glory that existed prior to the existence of the world. What is glory? I told you, maybe, on a Wednesday night, I, I learned that Greek word real quick because every time I came out of a Greek quiz or test, I said, doxa, Glory. That's a joke, but I said it because I was so glad to get out of those tests. Now, actually, I loved Greek. I took Greek, uh, minored in it in college and took it in seminary as well, but it's a beautiful language. It's an expressive language. But glory, Father, glorify me. 
if you glorify a human being, what are you doing for that person? You're giving them some sense of honor or, or credence. You are building them up. You're not supposed to glorify a person, but you know what I mean. Is that what he's saying, Father, give me credit? In the Old Testament, we hear and we read about what's called the Shekinah glory of God. Moses, after he came down from the Mount Sinai, what did they notice different about him? He had a aura, as we would say in this world, but he shone with the glory of God. He, he manifest, he had been in the presence of God, and so he reflected that glory. So what is glory? To give credence or credit? It is who God is. It's, it's the manifest nature, the internal essence of who God is. So Jesus is praying, okay, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before time existed, before the world came into being. So, Father, shine through me like I used to shine. Do I understand it? I do not. But I know He is praying for glory to be manifest in Him that was like it was in the pre-incarnate state of our Lord Jesus. In verses 1 and 5, our Lord asked that His pre-incarnate glory be given Him again so the Son might glorify the Father upon His return. Yes. He says in verse 2 and 3, You gave Him authority over flesh that He might give eternal life to all who have given Him. This is eternal life that they may know You, the one and only true God, and the one You have sent, Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on earth, verse 4, by completing the work you gave me to do. I have glorified you. I've given credence to you, Father. I've given glory to you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. What is this completed work? He is speaking somewhat of what is to happen and what has happened. He is speaking of Calvary which from a human standpoint is a horrible manifestation of our sinfulness. He had to die because of you and me. He had to die so that our sins would not be imputed to us. He had to die, the perfect Lamb of God, so that you could be saved. How about that? So that I could be saved. That's the completed work about which he speaks. You see, from a human standpoint, it's the horrible display of our sinfulness that crushed a precious, perfect Lamb of God. But you need to also understand that Calvary, from the divine point of view, is the manifestation of the grace and glory of God. He was glorified on the cross because the nature of God flowed through that horrible manifestation of suffering so that we could see His power and who He really is. 
You really want to know what God is like? Look to the cross. You really want to see how he loves? Look to the cross. You really want to see his glory? It was manifest on the cross. It's behind the screen, but it's up there. The cross. From Calvary, from, from the divine point of view, it magnified the grace and glory of God. And he said in verse 4, I've glorified you on the earth by completing what you gave me to do. Okay, God, I'm done. I've done it. I've done it. And in verse 3, what did he say? I've given eternal life, Father, to those you gave me to give eternal life to. And who's that? Everyone that claims the name of Christ becomes a part of the family of God. And now look at verse 3. We've got to spend just a moment here. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life. Now, you teach your children, how long is eternity? It's forever and ever and ever, right? Jesus does not see eternity in the terms of a calendar. Listen to me. He sees eternity in terms of a relationship. We see it in terms of a clock or a calendar. Eternity is forever. And yes, it is. You're not teaching your children incorrectly. But he defines it in a totally different way in verse 3. This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God, and the one whom you've sent, me, Jesus said. So eternal life is about a relationship, not a length of time. Father, that's the work you gave me to do. That every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and later on, who would say yes in repentance and faith and come to Christ and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Every one of them, Father, you gave to me. I've given them what? Eternal life, which is what? A relationship. So that they might know you and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. I'm telling you, friends, that changes everything. He prays. He says, Father, I've I've done it. And what is about to happen on the cross? That's the completed work you gave me to do. Father, I've done it. I'm doing it. Well, the father answered his son's request. And gave him the glory. The father answered the son's request. Jesus' prayer request was answered with a yes. And he gave his son the glory. The manifest power and presence of God the Father. And because we share his life, can share his life, if we give our life to Christ, we too are overcomers. As he'd already told us back in chapter 16, we also can share his victory. Now listen to me. When you were born the first time, you were born in Adam, in sin. But when you were born again in Christ, you were born again for eternity into an eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Son. That's something powerful that you need to remember. When you were born the first time, you were born a loser. 
because the sin nature is embedded in each one of us. But when you were born again, you were born a winner, an overcomer. Because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And you share his life. Don't let Satan rob you of that. Don't let him rob you. I have a dear friend. He listens to this service too. I don't know why. He's a pastor down in Lawrence. He sends me beautiful devotionals every Sunday morning. Very wonderful. Did you hear me, Greg? They really are. This morning he gave a quote from a great historian, former Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, who was great in many ways. Great historian, made his living before and after his prime ministry, uh, writing history books, uh, by the way. He did say this. I'd heard it before, but I did not know to whom to attribute it. He said, history is written by the victors. And that is true. The victors are the ones who write history. But my friend said wisely and beautifully, cogently, that we need to make sure we let Christ write our story, not the devil. The devil will write a story about me of failure, and probably you too. But Christ wants to write a different story, doesn't he? He wants to write a story of victory. He wants to write a story that we have overcome because we are a part of who? We're in the family of Christ. That's what he wants. And so I close by asking you to let Jesus write your story. He wants you. He wants you to have eternal life. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And look what he did. Look what he did. So that you can have that kind of eternal life relationship. Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank you that you've let us listen in to this prayer. Oh God, it speaks to us because we sense the passion and the truth of Jesus praying to you. And Lord, even including us in the whole process, we want to share his life by faith and by walk, as we walk in you, as we grow in you. So Lord, let us have that faith that's saving and redeeming. Speak to every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place today. Speak to every heart that we might say yes to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Now everybody look up. Look up. Father, you've heard our prayer. We love you and we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, say amen.